What's up, crafties? Welcome to another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast. The only, or I should say, one of the very small handful of podcasts I know which talk exclusively about Magic the Gathering Arena. I mean, let's just face it, we're one of the best games in town. I'm one of your hosts, Arjuna. The other host, Covert Go Blue. Some might say Covert Go Boom, based on how he's been going off lately. I don't know. How's it going, CGB? <laughs> uh, excuse me. Uh, professional. Um, I just drank a lot of soda and ate a lot of food before we started the show. Because I've been streaming so much, I haven't had time to eat. I wonder if that'll make it into the final cut. Guess we'll find out. Uh, stay Leave tuned. Leave it in. Leave it in. <laughs> I'm feeling, I'm feeling um, quite carbonated and uh, got a little air and various pipes. That's, that's what's going on today. Uh, so excited to talk this week about all kinds of things going on on MTG Arena. Glad to hear you're full of gas, CGB, because we're going to need that today. Today, we're going to be focusing on the Jeskai Mutate deck, which took standard by storm, at least in the Strixhaven Championship. We discussed it just briefly last week, and we decided it would be an interesting topic to go all the way with on the show. In my humble opinion, not necessarily because I would recommend that you play the deck, but because I think there's a lot that we can learn from talking about the deck. So we'll get a little bit more into that in a minute. First of all, a few things to do here. We have a shout out for Sean McDougall, who asked me to just, you know, give a little soccer, a little football shout out on the show. Apparently we're turning into a soccer podcast now, CGB. No, no, <laughs> I, I thought I made, I thought I made my feelings about the soccer section clear, but here we go again. All right. So apparently Scotland is playing uh, England at Wembley coming up here. So it's basically a me versus Crokey's vendetta at this point. I don't even know if Crokey's follows football at all, but you know, you make assumptions. He does. He does. You, you make assumptions. So anyway, because I don't really care that much about it, I'm going to wish the Scots all the best. I'll be rooting for you, you know, smash those smug Anglos get them out of your country and uh let's go i thought wait you're not you're scottish no i'm english <laughs> okay i'm just right. i'm cheering for the other side man it's an inside job you're such a contrarian <laughs> <laughs> hey man here's here's the real problem right the real problem when you root for england is that we get to the quarterfinals of any international tournament and then we get handily beaten by like italy or brazil or something and uh so it's i've i'm just over it i'm over it by now you've had your hopes dashed too many times too many times indeed i'm glad we clarified that before we lost the entire uk uh listenership forever they thought they had a hero and now they're just left with a turncoat scotsman a smug american so i was feeling (laughs) i was feeling for them maybe they'll forgive you because i'm sure they know that pain yeah, I, I mean, they've learned not to expect any more from their heroes. Um, okay, moving forward from that, <laughs> I also have to uh, have to highlight. So next week, Kovac, Go Blue, and I are going to do our next showdown on the show. It will be in celebration of the 100-card historic brawl format, which is, let's see, it's live on Arena. Yes, now. As, as of our recording of this. Yeah, we're really stoked to just get into that format 
I anticipate a handy whooping at the hands of CGB, who has been turning his significant brain power towards Brawl and Commander for some time now. Whereas, uh, so it's Chad CGB versus the Virgin Arjuna, who hasn't played a game of either of those formats in literally months. So um, anyway, I look forward to seeing the arsenal that you bring to the table for that showdown, CGB. Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. I'm a big fan of the 100-card Historic Brawl format coming to Arena because I think there's a lot of room to fill the deck with all kinds of cards and get as close to Commander as we've ever been. And we're going to give like just a few ideas of what commanders we're interested in and why in just a little bit. I think we have a question of the week, though, before we get to that. We do. We do indeed. Question of the week. And this is somewhat related, uh, which I, I just find this an interesting question. Audio Evil 112 asks, do you think that some mystical archives should be restricted, as in the old, the old definition of restricted, which is one copy per deck? And if so, which ones? And I think this just brings an interesting question to the format of Historic and uh, what Historic would look like if we restricted instead of banned certain cards. What's your hot take on that, CGB? I feel like, I, I feel like I've had experience with this, um, not just from playing Commander or Brawl or things like that, but from playing Magic Duels, which was an interesting side product of Magic. It had a few weird rules, things like there was no upkeep. There was like there was some kind of bizarre oh, things really? to it. But for wow. the Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> okay. but there was but things that triggered on upkeep just triggered. There was just no way to set a stop there, no way to do something in the upkeep unless something else happened in the upkeep. And it was on Xbox. So like you you had this timer that was literally like two or three seconds and it was running down at all times in response to anything and you had to hit your X button to pause and figure out if you had a response. So for a control mage <laughs> like me, you're just like I have to stay glued to the screen, spamming the X button at oh, most gosh. of the time. It, especially <laughs> if it got laggy. It was fun. But one of the quirky things about magic duels was rarity restriction. You could have four of any common, but you could only have three of uncommons, two of rares, and one solitary of a mythic. And what what made that, it, it was kind of fun because I was playing a lot of magic duels while also watching competitive magic and kind of witnessing the MTG scene of the time from afar. And this was uh, Magic Origins, um, Battle for Zendikar, uh, that kind of thing, uh, Shadows over Innistrad, that, that time period. And it was interesting seeing how the meta in paper and in tournament magic was different in a lot of ways from the duels meta because you couldn't build around delirium cards, for example, because you only got a couple of the good payoffs. Um, like there, there just weren't enough. Like, what are you going to do? Play Mindrack Demon? Like that was one of your good payoffs for delirium. There just wasn't enough ways to play enough rares and mythics that if you went to all the trouble of using the commons to and uncommons to fill your graveyard, you didn't you weren't likely to have a way to get paid. So there is something to this suggestion that restricting cards to a single copy can reduce the build around power of those cards. For example, restricting a time warp, I think, would result in time warp not needing to be banned because the problem with time warp isn't the one time warp it's spamming time warp again and again and again and you're kind of if you restrict time warp and mizzik's mastery for example the odds of velomachus lorehold making time warp get cast like 15 times isn't very realistic that said these things can happen they feel really bad when they do and 
it's just too much to think about. How come some cards are fine as a one-of, and others are just banned entirely? At least with banned, there's no wiggle room. There's no, well, maybe just a little bit? Because that's what it sounds like. It sounds to me like this person's been damaged and they're bargaining. They're like, wait a minute, wait, wait, no. No, not all the time warps. Can I just have a little time warp? Just a little. I was one of the good guys. I wasn't trying to take all the turns. I just want the occasional extra turn. And you know what? There's no bargaining here. It's Wizards of the Coast. It's their show. They're going to stomp on your throat and like it. They're going to like it, and you're going to like it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to presume, but yeah, I guess you will. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I think one of the things that this highlights for me is the difference between a format like historic and a format like vintage. Now, one of the reasons that restricting, I think, works in vintage is that you have access to, like, some of the most ridiculous cantrips, tutors, you know, like... You can do almost anything with your deck that you feel like in Vintage. You can mill your whole deck on turn two. You can, you know, it's kind of the sky's the limit. And so I think in a format like that, it's a lot more interesting to have one-offs because you have access to all of these ridiculous cards and you do actually have to do some work to get the copy of the card to do the thing. So I think that it balances out quite well there. Um, I think in Historic, it's... I think that the format is just not structured in a way to make one-offs that compelling. Uh, And so I agree with you, CGB. I like just giving something the axe. Because it's true, it's like, once you have any wiggle room, like they even have the, isn't it called Restricted currently in Historic, where they have a card that's like Shadow Banned? It's, It's not banned, but it's... What, what's the oh, term, right? Is, they is, have a suspended list. Suspended, they have not used it. it. They right. have not used it in the last three announcements. Yeah, you know, Uro wasn't suspended, Thassa's Oracle wasn't suspended, and uh, Time Warp was not suspended, although they yeah. could have been. Yeah, so, you know, so it is kind of, uh, yeah, exactly. Once you introduce Wiggle Room, like you said, it just, I don't know, man, consumer confidence goes down, people have that shaky feeling in the pits of their gut, you know, they don't want to buy stock, they don't want to invest in property, yeah, and then you end up with a weird thing. So I, I think it doesn't make sense for Historic, but I think it's an interesting question, and I'm always personally curious about any aspect of Magic as it's played anywhere else that could potentially come to Arena, and it's just a good reminder that Arena is definitely only a sliver of the Magic universe, and there are just plenty of things that happen regularly in Magic that don't happen on Arena, and maybe some of them should. What are you talking about? I, I don't know of anything else. I am I am a worm in apple, and my life is this apple, all right? <laughs> That's why we're the Arena Craft Podcast with occasional soccer talk. Indeed. And, um, <laughs> Indeed. I, I, I want to I piggyback on consumer confidence uh, that you were mentioning and talking about investing. I mean, why are things restricted in vintage? Because if you ban Black Lotus, someone's out $20,000. That's why. Very good point. They, they literally <laughs> like point. bought it to play Commander and Vintage. I, <clears throat> that's a problem. You know, and if you're one of those people rocking Lotus in your Commander deck, I'm just not sure that I want to share a table with you, good person. So <laughs> there you go. I, 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 at my game store, I have seen somebody just get up and leave when somebody turned one Lotuses. No table flip, just like zip up the backpack and go. I, I'm sure that the demeanor had something to do with it. The guy was literally like, tank, 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 keep. Tank, 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 
Black Lotus. Sacrifice. Play my commander. Gone. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. gone. <laughs> They're like, Lotus, play Soul Ring, Demonic Tutor, Yago. <laughs> anyway, that's, there's your commander talk, your paper commander talk for the cast. Indeed, which is a good transition, CGB. So let's just get into, before we hit our main topic here, let's get into a quick overview of this format. We'll do a deeper dive on it next week um, after we've had our showdown and share our thoughts on it. But what's percolating for you with the announcement of this particular iteration, CGB? So, showdown details. We're going to battle on Twitch.tv on Thursday? Yes. I believe this coming Thursday at the time you listen to this. If it's fresh, I can't think of the date. I think it's like the... Is it the 24th? I think it's the 24th. I do believe it's the 24th as well. And we're right. doing that at 2 p.m. Pacific, I believe. Ish. 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 You know, I'm yeah. a diva. We start when I'm ready, but that that's fine. <laughs> Once the has in place, you know? Yeah, you never know what it's going to take. But anyway, so we'll be battling. We each are bringing, I believe we picked three? Three decks. Three decks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the games can be pretty long. And if, if, if we have extra time, we'll just kind of shake up the matchups a little bit. And uh, seeing who got who has this format, you know, in a tight grip, who's got a grasp on the format, and we'll both be practicing, I think, during the week like we did when we broke 2021 standard. Uh, last year so it's going to be a lot of fun bragging rights are on the line make sure you check it out on twitch and next week on the show we'll talk about what we played why and what we found about the format so to start this week looking at the format it has its own banned and restricted list or, or ban list i should say not a restricted list everything's restricted duh but um it's not the historic brawl uh ban list it's a yeah, it's its special own 100-card Brawl ban list. And a few cards are still on it. Demonic Tutor, Cowards. <laughs> Tainted Pact is on there. Come on. We were going to do such fun things. Uh, Channel is on there. Like None of that is too surprising to anybody. Oko is still banned. Teferi Time Raveler, Teferi 3, is still banned. Two cards that I've found, and there might be more, but two cards that I've found that are not banned... Number one is Golos. Golos. So this is a card that's been... Golos. Golos. Oh, you're excited? That gets I, you going? I, 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 I mean, okay, I am and I'm not. I think I'm excited because I haven't played Brawl in the last handful of months. I think Golos is one of those commanders that um, when you first build the deck with it and do the thing and, you know, go off and whatever, it feels amazing. And then, like, when your opponent plays the 100th Golos, you just want to flip the table and zip up your backpack and leave so yeah but for the moment i'm i'm excited to have access to that card. all right all right sounds like i may have to be prepared to be a golos <laughs> gamer all right the other one is a pretty fun one that i never got to play in brawl because it was banned within a week of being released in brawl as part of a very big announcement by the way that a lot of people just missed and that card is minota joiner of forces this, this card was banned in Standard Brawl like a week after it was released for putting up absurd win rates in Brawl, just breaking the format in half, and I never even got a chance to play it. But here in 100-card Historic Brawl, your commander can be Winota Joiner Forces. So I think Thoughts this is actually cool game. in 100-deck specific, because this is what I predict, is it's going to highlight the mathematics of 100 cards versus 60 cards. 
So cards like Winoto are very, you know, hit dependent. They're very draw dependent. You have to draw your non-humans and hit your humans. And as we've learned with Yorian decks, and now even more so with these 100-card decks, I just think that the consistency is going to go down. I mean, not when opponents are playing the card against me, obviously. But I think in <laughs> in the aggregate, um, I do think that we're going to see more misses and also more opening hands full of humans. Never seen a Winota miss in my life, man. That, that's my bad beat story. It's just a tough life. <laughs> oh, but, man. It's rough. There's some... There's some interesting humans in historic as well. Yeah, like uh, there are. There's there's some there's some pirates lurking around from the Ixalan days, and there's been some interesting introductions through like the uh, anthologies. Definitely. Well, so, and another thing to another thing to remember is that Winota has historically see what I did there been a Naya deck in the format, and you won't be able to do that in this Commander Brawl format because. Uh, for those of you who are really not up on the format, you can only play the colors in your commander's identity, which in Winota's case is just borrows. So I think that, that that in some ways forces some creativity for the deck. I actually like that part a lot. It was something at first about commander I didn't like, and now I really do like it because otherwise everything could just be a five color pile. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it would be like it would be fun for everyone for a week and then it would just quickly be really annoying. I think another thing as well is that so one of the less fun things about Commander, I would say, is that over time you start to learn the cards that you must run. There's, it's like every deck starts with a list of cards and it's just because they suit the format very well. And I think that if all Commander decks could play five colors your starting deck list would just be 60 cards for every deck. And then, yes. <laughs> and then you'd yeah. go from there. So I think that it's a, it's a wise choice they've made. That could be a really fun segment for next week. Like the, the cards that we found that just fit the format and go in all of the decks that we brew. It yeah. could be interesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so on my side, and then I'll throw it over to you to ask if there's any commanders that right away suit your fancy. Uh, there are several blue commanders. And all of them have something in common, which is that they kind of let you cheat on mana a little. And the biggest problem with being a control mage in, in a big old powerful OP historic brawl world is it's just hard to keep up with all the things that happen. So you need mana advantage. And mana advantage is such a big part of the format. You know, Omnath is still legal. and It's the first deck I played today. So if I'm going to play a control deck in the format, I'm looking at commanders like Baral, Chief of Compliance, Teferi... The five mana one that untaps two lands after the plus one, and Galazeth Prismari, which allows you to make a treasure and then tap your treasures to cast instants or sorcery spells. So those are three I really want to experiment with. I'm glad you mentioned Galazeth, because that stood out to me as well when I saw it. Part of it's also just that um, historic decks and brawl decks in general tend to run a fairly high concentration of artifacts. There are a number of reasons for that, but you know the artifacts in general help you to do things like make more mana, um, smooth out your deck a little bit with you know cards like uh, the Tome. So yeah, I I I see Galazeth being a strong contender for a good starting point. Um, also in the Izzet tribe now, okay, this is where I run into trouble with Commander and with Brawl CGB. Is first of all, I like think I like theory crafting with cheap commanders, like two mana commanders. 
Um, uh-huh. Which leads people to make awful decks with cards like um, Gallia, for example. <laughs> okay. Uh, today I was like, maybe I'll just tilt CGB by making a Kari Zev commander deck. Just like, boom. Wow. Two drops swinging with a monkey. Let's go. Um, wow. How will I ever stop somebody who attacks me? on turn three <laughs> yeah. with red cards. Yeah, I, I figured that um, anyone bringing mono red to a fight against Kovac Go Blue has to be ready for him being ready. <laughs> um, but like, for example, um, Agar, the Freezing Flame, I was looking at that card and I was like, man, that could be a really sweet commander, right? It's just like a, it's like a cheap card advantage engine, you know? So this is, I think that this is like my leak in Commander is that I'm drawn to theory crafting decks around like fairly low powered cards. And I, I, (laughs) the impression I get for Commander is that like, if you're not thinking big, if you're not thinking really big, you're probably not thinking big enough. I just got so excited about next week. Go on, tell me more about Agar the Freezing Flame. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, it's the double-edged sword of Commander, right? Is that some Commanders are just clearly more powerful and better than the other ones, but then you have all of these other Commanders that appeal to people's sensibilities, and they're fun, and they make you feel creative, and they make you want to sleeve up your deck. And so... I mean, that's often been the tension in Magic, but I think that Commander really exacerbates that disparity. And so in our yeah. in our showdown, I'm definitely going to have to rein in some of my more Vorthos tendencies in order to put up a good showing. But we can still talk about them on the show, and maybe you can show them off on stream for people who are interested in that stuff. Indeed. I think, I think this discussion, though, shines a little light behind the scenes on the design process and why we keep getting these pushed freaking broken mythic legendary cards in every set because yeah, yeah uh, some commanders are just better than others they do busted stuff so they need to print more good commanders or else commander just stays the same and commander is of course currently the most popular format and with this new historic brawl might be poised to take over the arena so Indeed. Gotta make those gotta make those power cards, man. Indeed, indeed. Well, um, I would say, you know, my advice for the arena crafties is don't don't get too spiky in brawl. I they they actually said that they've made a um, deck strength matching algorithm for this event. Yeah, that's true. So I would just recommend that you you build the commander of your heart's dreams and just know that you'll be matched against the jank you deserve and. And that's the way it'll go. You will a good amount of the time. And then every now and then you'll just get paired against Omnath and you'll realize what a speck of dust you are. So I thought I thought that Omnath was not legal for this particular event. It am, is. Am I wrong about that? You're wrong about that. That's, wow. That was the first uh, commander I played today, Omnath. I mean, okay, so crafties, if you want to win, that's exactly where you should be. <laughs> Day one is Omnath. It's, it, yeah, it's a good start. I actually, my experience was that I probably needed to get cheaper, or or uh, yeah, I needed I needed to get cheaper. I think, but we'll see. We'll see. My my impression playing Omnath on day one was that other people do busted stuff too, and Omnath, by nature, the amount of ramp you have to run can mean he's a little slow. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I mean, Omnath has always been somewhat of a deadly card, 
So you have to factor that into the equation. All right, well, I think that's a good sneak preview. Yeah, I definitely don't feel as equipped for this conversation as I will next week, so I'm looking forward to revisiting it then. Another thing that I ended up not being particularly well equipped for is the main topic of our show, which is Jeskai Mutate. Now, this deck... This is going to be your most uncomfortable show, I think. Like, like we have we have dragged you in out of the comfort zone into the deep water. <laughs> I I am not happy about this. Just just for the record, <laughs> C, CGB has like he's cashed in one of his his co-host chips to uh, he's he's dragged me into this so to speak. And yes, I have put in some time to get to know this deck. And my initial read on the deck is thanks. I hate it, but. <laughs> I think it is a very interesting deck, and I'm glad that we're talking about it, and I've definitely learned a lot playing the deck. So when we pull out to like a, an eagle's eye view of magic, I think one of the most important things about getting better in magic is to do things that you're not good at, and to just get used to deck styles that you're not comfortable with. And combo decks are really like a, they're like a founding pillar of magic, you know? It's like... I, I would say like your four classic magic decks are aggro, uh, mid-range, control, and combo. Would you agree with that, CGB? I would say combo was before mid-range. If you, if you cut it to three, going by the classics, mid-range was a development that really started to get popular a little bit into the development of the pro scene and the kind of the pop while the popularity of magic was rising and some pioneers kind of figured mid-range out combo was there first so i agree with what you're saying but if you went back even further i think uh combo was like one of the founding fathers basically there you go so the original trifecta of magic mm -hmm. metagame and i think that it's uh it's a deck style that a lot of players feel the least confident with and it's it's usually because they either have an alternate win con or they have a regular magic win con, but they go through a very convoluted process to get there. So like maybe you are still dealing 20 damage to your opponent, but you're doing it via exiling two thirds of your deck or something like that. So I think that it, it really stretches the comfort zone of a lot of magic players. And I think it's one of the reasons why you should give a deck like this a try if you have the cards crafted. If you don't have the cards crafted, I would recommend not going ahead and crafting those four Vadrocks. Um, but anyway, so um, Kovac Obli, you've probably overall played this deck more than I have now. My first question is, before we go into the specifics of the deck, how good do you actually think it is, just like for a player on the ladder? For a player on the ladder? Like, let's say you are, let's say that you are expert level with the deck. You're really confident in your ability to execute the combo. How do you think about people's kind of win percentage chances in the matter? I think it's A tier. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it. I think if you are actually an expert with the deck, that there probably there probably aren't many matchups you fear, and they're definitely not that popular in the meta. And you're you get so much equity from the fact that nobody knows what to do with this deck and how to play against it that you often win from it. So I would say any expert in this deck should keep playing it. I don't think its stock is lower because it performed well at the Strict Save in Championship. I think it's still this enigma to a majority of players. I mean, I've seen pro players who encounter this deck on stream and or they make a post on Twitter and they have no idea what's going on. Like, they're just, like, what is this thing? I don't know. Uh, these are people who 
should be testing and plugged into the meta. They can't be bothered to figure out Jeskai Mutate. So you still get equity, surprise equity, that is usually hard to get from a an, like an A-tier deck. I would agree. Like I saw a lot of nices and like emotes from people when I was playing the deck, which led me to believe that it might have actually been the first time they'd ever seen the deck being played out. But yeah, I, I don't know. I struggled... I struggled on the ladder, and it's it's probably just a reflection of the fact that I still have a lot to learn about being a Magic player, or maybe I just need to work more with the deck. The, this this is like the hardest deck I can remember to play. I, I compared it before we started the show to Kethis Combo, where that deck was a very late-season bloomer. Uh, Stanislav Sifka, Andrei Strasky, like brought it out, and it eventually took over the pro scene, and it was very hard to play. But once you'd played it a few times, you kind of knew what you needed. I've played this deck probably 50 times. When I'm, quote, going off, I'm still not sure if I'm going off. I I have never once felt like, okay, I've got this now. This is my loop. I'm going to do this, and this is going to work out. I still feel like I'm just swimming uphill at all times when I play this thing. So you're not alone. It's it's a very tough deck to play. I do want to dial in, like, what? Can you can you identify the 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 pain points the what the when where where is this uncomfortable when do you feel the most uncomfortable? So I I do want to do that, but I think in order to really get into that, we have to look at the list and get into some of the mechanics of how it works. Sure. So why don't we start there? Um, I'm gonna read off a list by Tangrams David Inglis, um, who did extremely well with this deck in the Strixhaven Championship. And I mean, it did have a, I think it was a 60% win rate, win rate in that tournament, um, which is very, very good for like a high level tournament. The engine of this deck comes from three creatures that it runs. It runs Vadrock Apex of Thunder, it runs Goldspan Dragon, and it runs Law Dracus. In, so it runs four of each of these. Now we're all familiar with what Goldspan Dragon does. But you may not have read these other two cards, so let's go over them. CGB, can you tell the people what Vadrock is and does? I feel like in five years this will be one of those trivia questions that will that will all just be trying to scratch our heads through. <laughs> Seriously. Right. So Vadrock Vadrock is a Jeskai, a blue, red, and a white for a three-three flying first strike creature, and it is a elemental dinosaur cat that is legendary for those who want this information. And it mutates for one and a hybrid blue-white, a red and a red. So that is something I forgot a lot, by the way, playing this deck, that you need double red. Um, yes. But we'll get back to I, that. I also forgot that the mutate cost more than the original casting cost. That yep. got me once or twice. <laughs> Both of those things are a little bit backwards to those of us who have played a lot of Simic Mutate. Whenever this creature mutates, you may cast target non-creature card with converted mana cost 3 or less from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. Free spell. You get so free spell. This is definitely one of the most important engines in the deck. I think it's fairly impossible to really go off without at least one of these live and preferably two or more. Yep. Um, so, so that's that's really the the core interaction, um, and then Lord Dracus is definitely kind of helping out as well. So, Lord Dracus is a one blue red creature lizard beast. It's a two three. It mutates for two. Is it hybrids? So either double blue, double red, or a combination. And whenever this creature mutates, return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. 
So preferably what you're doing is every time you're mutating onto your dragon, you're getting these mutate stacks of a couple free spells, a couple hands returned, a couple cards returned to your hand, and then you just kind of try to do the whole thing again. So what are the spells which keep this engine going? One of the most important sorceries I found in this deck is definitely Seize the Spoils. And I'm actually, that's one of the most exciting parts of this deck because CGB will know that I have a soft spot for this card and cards like this card. And this is like an actually tier deck, which this card is appearing in. So that gives me the, the happy feels. Yeah, that gives you the clout because you said that that would happen and I was very <laughs> skeptical when we did the set <laughs> review. You know, sometimes Arjuna is pretty gas at magic. He is. He is. I just can't let him know. <laughs> Good thing he's not in the room. Seize the spoils. Why don't you read this card for us? Now you're just rubbing it in. <laughs> All right. Do so first, so uh, this is two and a red for a sorcery. As an additional cost to cast this spell, discard a card. Draw two cards. Create a treasure token. So I want to say really quickly, if people are just listening to this and they didn't remember it or hear it in our show last week. The treasures in this deck are the mana engine and the fact that you target when you cast mutate triggers goldspan dragon and creates a treasure that that's really important to where the free mana is coming from. Pretty much anytime you're going to pop off, you said you have to have a Vadrock. Well, you you really have to have a goldspan dragon. That's true. Because yeah. Cranking out those treasures is an important part of the engine. So any other cards that make a treasure, like Seize the Spoils, uh, really contribute to the mana engine as well. Because if you think about it, you mutate a Vadrock onto a Goldspan Dragon that costs you four mana. That generates a treasure from the Goldspan Dragon. And if you cast Seize the Spoils for free with your Vadrock trigger, it creates another treasure and you draw two cards. So you're back to mana parity. Absolutely. And I found that that combo of Goldspan Dragon, Vadrock, and Seize the Spoils to be like a very important part of the engine. Um, I think it's it's hard to really go off with this deck if you don't have a Seize the Spoils live and you're not casting it for free. So um, yeah, and then another card which ha- does a similar thing to Seize the, Seize the Spoils is Prismari Command, which the deck also runs three copies of. This card needs no introduction, but I will note that under almost no circumstances are you ever allowed to cast this card in this deck without selecting treasure as one of the options. So that is, yeah, that's a that's a big pointer. I would also say that Prismari Command, one thing it has on Seize the Spoils, is at least once or twice you can get away with using it to go mana positive, not just mana neutral, because you can choose to deal two damage to your Goldspan Dragon, and since that targets the Goldspan Dragon, it creates a treasure as well. So if you mutate Vadrock for four, and you make a treasure because you mutated the Vadrock onto the dragon, that's two mana from that treasure, then you cast Prismari Command from the graveyard for free, you target your own dragon for two damage, and you target yourself for a treasure, that's Two more treasures. So you have three treasures now. You made, you took four mana, you made six. Yep, absolutely. So um, so that's very, very key. And then there are two other cards that I consider to be integral to your actual engine. And uh, one of them is Spikefield Hazard. Now this is, this is kind of just like a cheeky little include in the deck, but it basically what it allows you to do is generate two mana for one mana by pointing that one damage at your dragon you basically get 
a treasure. And um, so this this is a thing that you'll often do in this deck is either like point three spike field hazards at your dragon make some extra mana, or maybe like a spike field hazard and then a Prismari command at your dragon make some mana. And then the final piece of the combo is unsubstantiate, which is very, very important. So unsubstantiate, uh, simple blue card, one and a blue instant, return target spell or creature to its owner's hand. So what you're going to be doing a lot in this deck is dealing up to three damage to your dragon and then bouncing and then generating a lot of treasure. And this is very, very important is you have to sack the treasure before you bounce the dragon because you double the mana. And a pro tip, which I learned after a couple of times of playing the deck, which I hadn't originally thought about, was that you actually want to make sure that when you target the dragon with the unsubstantiate, you sack the treasure that that is is making before the Mm -hmm. dragon comes back to your hand uh, because that nets you an extra mana as well. You get to know your stops or your full control with this deck too, which is another, you know, important part of the just brain swirling will making confused number math face emoteness of the deck exactly exactly so what this ends up being is it feels like a it's like a seven card combo or something like that because you i've found that you do end up needing pretty much all of these cards in some measure to effectively combo off with the deck and um i mean the good news is that like most of the deck is cantrips so the other the supporting cast as it were we've got four copies of expressive iteration what else have we got we've got some negates just to help protect your combo hopefully while you're doing stuff Uh, we've got some copies of fire prophecy to just control the board and maybe put back a combo piece that you don't need right now got some other counter spells in the form of essence scatter and mystical dispute scorching dragonfire and sajiri shelter which i think is a fantastic include. It's just another way to protect your dragon if you need to. Yep. So that that's really the basis of the deck. We have a you know a Jeskai mana base, which is definitely heavily slanted towards is it because you really don't have that much white stuff to be casting. I, w- I would say that the finishing move is not like attacking. I some people might wonder, but you end yeah. up eventually casting Prismari Command over and over and dealing two points to the opponent's face until they are dead. Yes, exactly. So let's take a moment to describe, because I feel like this deck has two, there are two phases of combo in this deck, which is one of the things that makes it so hard. A lot of combo decks, it's like, you just get enough of the combo together and then you do the combo on one turn and then you usually win or lose. In this deck, I found that you usually have to spend at least two turns comboing to win with the deck, unless you start the combo late in the game when you already have access to a lot of cards and mana. Yes, the rope is not kind. <laughs> the rope is not kind. And, let you know, I was going to wait to bring that up, but I, I actually want to talk about it now, because after playing this deck a lot, I actually think the rope is the most fatal flaw of this deck. It is. And this is what has often happened with me, is I've found it's, it's not hard to start comboing with this deck. I have found it to be fairly hard to end the game in one combo turn, and I've frequently found that if I didn't have enough mana or interaction cards in my hand to survive my opponent's following turn, I lost a lot of games that way. So it's frustrating because I would find myself in situations where I felt like I had the moral victory, but I just couldn't 
combo in time. And I also couldn't stop what my opponent was doing on their turn. And so, you know, I would often, like, I found myself losing to, like, mono white aggro a lot in situations like that, where I was like, well, I had it, but I just didn't have the time to, to kill him, basically. Let me ask you a question. Do you have screen time on your phone? Do you have a time limit of how much of your phone you use per day? My wife has this. No, I don't. No, no. No. Okay. So my wife has this where like, I'll just grab her phone. Some, she'll be like, grab my phone and look something up and I'll grab it. And it'll be like, you've hit your time limit. I'll be like, oh, what? What's this? So uh, some, some self-control stuff for people. You kind of need your own time limit. Like an, you need your own alarm bell of if you accept that you're probably not going to go off when you first start comboing with this deck because the rope is not going to allow you to. It's not hard, if you accept that, to get into a position where you have a ton of mana and a ton of counter spells, and your opponent's creatures are all dead to just basically create an insurmountable advantage. But you can't do that if you're spending the whole time trying to execute the combo in a fashion that would win the game. So the so what I mean when I talked about the, the screen time, the time limit, is basically if I have like two timeouts in the bank, which is pretty common when I go into combo mode, maybe three, but usually two. When the rope starts on its own, signifying that the turn's going to end no matter how many actions you take because it's taking too long, I mentally shift to I'm not going to combo off this turn, and I'm going, to, I'm going to be satisfied with being a mile ahead. I'm going to have a full grip, with probably two unsubstantiates, a counter, a negate, and an essence scatter, like a counter spell that can solve anything, and I'm going to kill every single thing on their board. And then I'm going to pass the turn. And I'm just going to accept, I'm not going to combo this turn, but they're not going to beat me. And I, I think that if you, I think your performance, even though it feels like you shouldn't have to do this, right? Because we're magic players. We love to get into how it should work. Even though... It shouldn't be this way. It is this way. That's the, um, it's the condition of the client. And I can't imagine trying to play this combo on paper, to be totally honest. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, if you accept that when you hit a certain point, you're just, going to sat- you're just going to settle for like bouncing or destroying their whole board and having a handful of counter spells, you can make that happen pretty quickly. I'm glad that you're talking about this because... I think that I probably lost some games where I was focused on trying to do the game-winning combo, where I probably should have just been more board-focused. And there are some matchups that reward you more for doing that than others. I definitely think that role assignment is really important in this deck, and that's something that you don't usually have to worry about in combo decks. It's very interesting. Also, sometimes you have these interesting choices of whether to play out another dragon. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep because you can essentially cast it for three mana in a way, and it might substantially speed up your clock to be able to just hit your opponent for more damage. Uh, I would also say if you have a second dragon, you don't have to worry about holding full control and sacking the treasures with the unsubstantiate and some of the things on the stack because the other dragon will keep the treasures making double mana when you bounce the first one. And it lets you, instead of having to recast the dragon to start the loop, you can just start mutating onto the other dragon that's in play right away. This can save you about a rope, about a timeout's worth of rope. Yeah, that's that's a really good tip, right? So these are the so so I think that it's one of the reasons I don't like the deck is that in addition to managing the combo, you also have to manage the client. 
I also ran into some other client frustrations, like for example, going to cast my spike field hazard on my dragon and playing it as a land. Which is the kind of thing where I don't worry about that most of the time on Arena because I'm not doing it 700 times a game. Uh-huh, yeah. So you start to <laughs> highlight some of the challenges of the Arena client, which is that, you know, you have these multiple options and you're going to select the right one 99 times out of 100. <laughs> Ar Arjuna, are you sure you want to target your dragon with Spikefield Hazard? Yes or no? <laughs> oh, yes no. or no, Arjuna? Yes or no? <laughs> exactly. It's the ninth time you've done it this turn, but are you sure? Yes or no? <laughs> One of my weaknesses with the Arena Client is the interface. Like sometimes I just click on the wrong option. And I think I'm worse at that than some other people. I don't know what it is. I just sometimes... I have so much information coming at me all day that I'm used to just, you know, like you're on a, a website and it pops up the cookie thing and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So sometimes that autopilot kicks in and I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then I'm like, yeah. oh, wait, hold on. I shouldn't have clicked that. Yeah. Uh, you played Tainted Pact before it was banned, right? Yes. Like you, you just click in the same spot. Yes, 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 yes. I think all of us try to hit that mode when comboing. If you try to do that with this, you get wrecked. How many times have you meant to cast the card in the graveyard and returned it to your hand with Lord Dracus? That That is one of the easiest things to mess up, right? It so really that's, is. So because what CGB is talking about is... That Vadrock and Lordracus both have triggers that go on the stack, and you you end up with these piles of Lordracuses and Vadrocks, and the triggers go off in the order that you originally mutated the creatures on, and so you might end up with a weird stack of like Vadrock, Dracus, Vadrock, two more Dracuses on top of that, and so every single time you mutate, you have to carefully read the little prompt on the screen. Yep. And because yes, the, have... the art is the same. It, yes. It's from the same creature. So the art will show no matter, like if your, if your Vadrock is on top or if the dragon is on top, you'll always see the art of the dragon. Yes. So you have to actually look. I've learned to zero in on the line of text like at the top where it says non-creature because Vadrock casts a non-creature spell and Lord Dracus returns an instant or sorcery. So I'm like zeroed in on exactly the spot on my monitor where it will say non-creature and I know I need to pick the Prismari command or the um, seize the spoils. And when it says instant or sorcery, I know I need to pick the spike field hazard. Yep. <laughs> and that's that's exactly it. So that so you go through these loops with this deck of trying to get your three mana spells cast for free off of Vadrock. And then I I have found that most of the time with the Lordracus you will just want to be returning a whole bunch of spike field hazards. But another card that you might need to return is unsubstantiate as well. Yep. You usually can't have enough unsubs or hazards in your hand while you do this if you're trying to choose what to return with the Dracus. Exactly. And then, you know, occasionally you'll also nab back in the gate or a fire prophecy if you need some board control. So, yeah, that that's just what I want to say is that in addition to learning how to play the deck, you really have to learn how to play the client for this particular deck. And that's part of the pain of doing it. And it's just, it's it's part of the deal that you signed up for. So you have to get used to that. 
Yeah, if you're one of those who just can't fire up Arena without... Like, like if it ever even goes through your mind that MTGO is such a better client for playing Magic, you just don't play the deck. Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're not, it's not getting better for you. Nope. You're not going to be happy. <laughs> you won't. You won't. Yeah, this is, this is definitely patience as a win con kind of a deck. So yeah, so CGB, you asked earlier about some of the other hang-ups, um, and I think we've already covered a number of them, but there are more. There are more. There are. Yeah. Yep. But complaining about this deck is part of the reveal, <laughs> how it works, to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 you can't talk about it and not talk about these things, so go ahead. Okay, so this deck for me has been a lesson in probability. For example... One of the very first games that I played with the deck, I didn't have an unsubstantiate in the top 40 cards of my deck. And it really limited my ability to go off of the combo, and it was very frustrating, and I lost. Another one of my early games, I just could not find a Vadrock for the life of me. And I learned very quickly that you just don't generate enough mana, basically, without Vadrock casting free spells every once in a while to really reliably go off. Yep. So there are just like a number of aspects of this deck that are very finicky. And I found it frustrating that most combo decks are like a two, three, four combo card combo. And this is really like you really need every piece of the combo to really get it firing on all cylinders. And there's a lot of them. There's, it's like seven or eight cards that you really need to find and get going consistently. So I had a lot of times with this deck where I assembled most of them, but I just mm -hmm. I didn't have the key combo piece that I needed on that particular turn. And I had to reroute my entire plan based around that. And it's hard because then time is an issue. Then you're tanking, then your rope is going down. And so you really do have to be nimble. You have to be very, very good at identifying which parts of the combo you're not able to execute and then modify your game plan accordingly. And I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back to kind of what we were saying a few minutes ago. Much like sometimes you get the combo going, but you know that the rope is going to interfere, you also have to kind you have to be willing to accept that you can do a halvesy combo or a little chunk of the combo. Did you ever play Rally the Ancestors when that was a combo deck back in the day? No. So uh, there, a term came around when this was part of the pro scene and Rally was considered one of the best decks. Uh, this was a deck built around just bringing a bunch of creatures out of the graveyard with a card called Rally the Ancestors. And the term was Value Rally, because the game often ended with a huge Rally the Ancestors that brought back a ton of creatures, and then they all sacrificed and used Blood Artist-type triggers to drain the opponent out. But the Value Rally was the thing that you did in like the early to mid-game that just got you a few creatures back, so you had some kind of board presence, your opponent had to respect what was going on, maybe you draw one or two cards from Elvish Visionaries. Uh, so, like, you don't always fire off the, the rally to win. Your first rally was usually something just to get things going, and you do that with this deck a lot. There's a lot of, like, false starts where you don't have all the pieces, and your first couple mutates and then hence bouncing with unsubstantiate or trying to defend it is about getting back expressive iteration and digging deeper for the next piece. Uh, your first, yeah, I, I think that's prob. I hope, did I sum that up okay? Does that make sense? Definitely, definitely. So yeah, the developing turns using this deck are interesting. I find that again, 
my favorite thing to cast on turn three is seize the spoils that card usually sets you up pretty well but you know uh prismari command is also fine it's just that the the ideal thing that you want to do in this deck is like play a turn for a dragon maybe get some lord dracus mutation going and finish off with a negate or some other interactive spell so you know that you've got a really solid start to the game going if you've got something like that or even a sajiri shelter just something to protect your dragon and then the mid to later turns of the game involve something like yeah getting a vadrock onto your dragon and you know recurring prismari command or seize the spoils here's one of the hardest aspects of this deck is what do you do if you don't find a gold span dragon okay first of all to kind of follow what you were saying there i think that understanding that the deck has this dimension of being dragon aggro tempo um it it can be a better prismari dragon deck because you can play seize the spoils or you can play prismari command on end step make a treasure and on turn four slam a dragon and have it protected by sigiri shelter unsubstantiate negate another counter spell and just tempo out the opponent without ever comboing you can play that game and it does work a lot because if you think about the times that you ever got prismari dragoned and it felt like they just had dragon plus two counter spells like this this deck can make that happen a, a decent amount of the time both before and after sideboarding but when you don't have a dragon at all, that's when it feels like you're playing an entirely different game. And there are kind of three games. Like, game number one is combo game. Game number two is dragon game. Game number three involves not drawing dragon at all. And this is what I found it to be. This is what I found the best way to handle this is. Do nothing. Stare at them. Just stare at them. Because... Even if you have a dragon, sometimes this is the best thing to do. If people have some idea of what's going on, they are so scared to tap out and interact because your capabilities are kind of amazing. Like on end step, you can go Prismari command, make a treasure, unsap, play a dragon, counter your counter spell, mutate, mutate, trigger, make a million value, etc. And there are so many decks like, say, Emergent Ultimatum. Right? They've got a lot of sorcery speed spells. They have seven mana cards they're trying to cast against your counter spells and your unsubstantiates. And they are terrified that you're going to go gold span dragon counter. The more time you do nothing, the more time they're pretty sure that's what's going to happen to them. And I, I've played so many games with this deck. If you are not getting smorked by aggro, if your opponent's like literally not doing much on the board, and they have any idea what you're doing, they're just so scared of dragon... The right play is to do nothing and just wait. Just wait and keep yeah. waiting. You know what else is the right place? Just get that freaking Yorian down, man. That <laughs> that was really annoying for me playing this deck. It's like, what? I don't get a free treasure out of my dragon attacking? Now I have to deal with that stupid Yorian? So, uh, it can be, yeah. Yeah, I, that's a play I would recommend is um, work on getting your Yorian down. It really slows the deck down. Yep. I've had some awkward games where you draw a bunch of Lord Dracuses and a bunch of burn spells and you end up having to do this awkward thing where like you're just trying to control your mono red opponent's board, you eventually mutate one Lord Dracus onto another Lord Dracus and get back some random spells and keep kind of desperately trying to dig to actually get your thing going on. And I've lost some games where I was just like basically felt like a really mediocre is it mutate deck. So that's definitely a thing that can happen. Um, one thing that I think is, uh, is an 
underappreciated line you can take with this deck is that a 3-3 flying first striker is really no joke, just as a creature. And I think especially there are matchups like mono red, where if you just like, if you get a Vadrock down and you have like a Sejiri shelter or something to protect against the inevitable frostbite that's going to come, you can actually just play some, do have some really interesting like combat interactions. And so I, I think people shouldn't be afraid to just remember that like you have some fairly capable creatures like the Vadrock in your deck that you can also build a game plan around if your dragon thing's not really working out. Yeah, Mat- matchups with aggro uh, of the white and red variety are the hardest, I think, for the deck. I agree. You Once you're under pressure, you do have to line up your cards in the right order. There are a lot of conditional answers in the deck that we outlined. And you do have to, you're on a clock. So you have to get the combo pieces or at least enough to stabilize and slow the opponent down together in a reasonable amount of time. And that's a lot harder. Fortunately, you have a lot of spike field hazards. You have fire prophecy and you can play a value game. I find against aggro, even though it's the time where I feel like the mutate creatures are the most likely to die, is the time where I'm casting them on turn three the most often. Because you do need the opponent to prioritize killing them, and if they can't, you can generate enough value out of them to take over the battlefield and kill your opponent's things. And once you start protecting them, the opponent's in big trouble. Unless you have a hand that like ramps into dragon, you know, sees the spoils or... Uh, Prismari Command into Dragon, I usually actually end up running out my Mutate creatures on turn three against Aggro a lot, something I almost never do against anybody else. The rest of the time, I'm never casting my Mutate creature without mutating the creature. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, you only cast... Like, you only play them not on your Dragon out of desperation, basically. Mm-hmm. And it is yep. definitely a legit thing to do, so... I totally and, agree. And aggro is desperate. When 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 you're yeah. when you're being attacked by Annex and company, it is desperate. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, and I you highlighted this a little earlier, CGB, but against aggro, don't feel bashful about just pointing your burn spells at the creature at your opponent's creatures, just killing them and just slowing your opponent down, and knowing that that's gonna slow your own combo down, because you won't have your Prismari command to point at your dragon when you draw it. But yeah. um, that's just a totally fine thing you can do. You can play a value game with this deck. You draw so many cards, you have so many burn spells, you have so many interaction spells that just like you were saying, you can just sometimes think of it as like a Prismari Dragons deck and, and go from there. Yeah, and remember also that Vadrock and Lordrakis are going to bring back those cards from the graveyard anyway, so firing them off is usually just fine because at some point you're just going to get value out of the graveyard. Exactly. A few other things to remember. This deck definitely reminded me of rules text on all of my cards, because, for example, I happen to forget, because I just don't play Goldspan Dragon decks very much, that cards like um, Binding the Old Gods don't give you a treasure when they target (laughs) the dragon. So. You have to remember stuff like that. Dragon says becomes the target of a spell. It does not say spell or effect. So I lost one game where I thought I was going to get a treasure that I didn't get. So I I think that that's another... I would very, very strongly encourage you before you start playing this deck to read your cards carefully. Read the costs of all of your cards carefully. Um, This is a very cost... It's a very budget-aware deck. So you, (laughs) you really have to know what you're working with here. 
I would second that, and especially with reading them ahead of time or in a game against Sparky, because you're not going to have time in the match that you're in. Uh, There's going to be growing pains. I I can't stress to people enough. I can't tell you how many times I've killed my own dragon. I can't tell you how many times I've come up like two mana short of what I thought I would have. I can't tell you how many times I didn't get to lethal when I thought I would. I can't tell you how many times my timer hit zero and I went to my end step and the auto discard effect discarded down to hand size and left me with nothing but land. I like these these things happen. That that was actually something I was very happy that I watched your video for um, because CGB does have a good video of him kind of working his way through the deck is that, yeah, if you see the rope approaching, Definitely budget the time to be able to discard to hand size because yeah yeah don't let it happen to you automatically it it's bad <laughs> yep yep yeah rope management is just huge this deck will teach you a lot about rope management I do want to highlight a card um if if you don't mind yeah go ahead one specific card that has been in standard since M twenty one came out and sees almost no play outside of it but is so key in this deck is unsubstantiate. And I think that card deserves some spotlighting because, first of all, when you see a card in a Tier 1 deck, you often think of it in Mafia terms. It's a made card. This this card has a pedigree, you know, and without really understanding what makes the card good. And if you run Unsubstantiate in control decks, for example, it's not going to do you many favors because the card is card advantage negative. If you target your opponent's spells, they keep their spell. It's tempo positive if you target something that costs three or more mana, like more mana than they put into the card. And that's generally not good enough. Uh, If it had draw a card on it, or if it put the card on top of the library, like Memory Lapse or Aether Gust, then you're you're like at card parity. You traded a card for a card. But when it only goes to hand, that's not the case. And the reason it's so good in this deck is it gives you time it can interact with spells but it can target your own things to do the loop so that you can bounce and restart your dragon loop so it has a very specific role so when you were talking about binding the old gods targeting your dragon not giving you a treasure let me ask you something when you're in that situation if you have an unsubstantiate and the treasure to use it are you supposed to bounce the binding or are you supposed to bounce the dragon it's a great question and I, I mean, yeah, bouncing the dragon is always a thing you can do. And I think it is the right play to do, you know, a lot of the time. Often because of the treasure, right? Because of the mana. Because yeah. you're plus two mana because you made a treasure. You get your mana back. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I exactly. I love what you, I love that you highlighted this card because it's such an important card in the deck. I love the ability for you to essentially counter or delay for a turn your opponent's ultimatum. And then, you know, ordinarily that wouldn't be the best play because they just slam it the next turn. But in a deck when you're pretty reliably able to just get it back to your hand, like it can actually be infuriating for your opponent. I've had games where I had like two copies of Unsubstantiate and I had two Lordracuses on my dragon. And it's like every every turn I'm like, I have two Unsubstantiates. Like, come at me, yeah. bro. What are you going to yeah. do? You don't need Vaidrock. They're just never going to resolve a spell again. It's always going to go back to their hand. And I, I love how you say it's infuriating to the opponent because they can just cast it next turn. Well, next turn's like 10 to 15 minutes away, bro. Like, I, <laughs> exactly. I, got, I, got, I got things to do over here. <laughs> That's it, man. So, yeah, Unsubstantiate, uh, just another one of those cards which uh, 
doesn't show up that often, but when it does, it has a strong role to play. Um, a final thing I want to mention is that uh, one of the original versions of this deck that I picked up and played was playing a copy of Defiant Strike. So, so Yoshihiko Ikawa has a slightly modified version of this deck list, and I, I actually enjoyed um, their version of the deck. So Yoshihiko has one copy of See the Truth, which used to see play in this archetype before the dragon came along. This card can draw you three cards, so it's pretty gas. So I, I enjoyed having that. Like I think, for example, I think a list which plays three expressive iteration, iteration one See the Truth is like totally fine. It's fine. Yeah, Defiant Strike as a one-of can be really, really cool in this deck because it's uh, it's actually like one of the better mana generation engines in specific situations because it's basically like Spikefield Hazard with draw a card added to it and it doesn't put damage on onto your creature. So it basically just gives you like another free treasure and another opportunity to make more treasure without having to bounce your dragon. So I, I enjoyed playing Yoshihiko's version of the deck and I just throw that out there as an alternate build. The way I see Defiant Strike is kind of like easy mode. Uh it, it adds like kind of an easy mode to it because Defiant Strike also when you're looping it grows your dragon so you can just attack for lethal. Exactly. Which is something that you usually can't do in the deck. Usually the dragon doesn't get larger so you end up having to do the command loop. It reminds me of when the Kethis deck added Jace so that when it milled itself, it could just play four mana Jace uh, and win the game because they had no deck. Whereas the real loop was to cast Oath of Kaya over and over and over and go face until they were completely dead. Yeah, the Defiant Strike does a opponent. similar thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, or mill the opponent with digit. Yeah, diligent excavator. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, Defiant Strike is kind of the give yourself a little easy mode uh, in this deck. I agree. One thing to note is that um, in order for a treasure to cast Defiant Strike, it needs to make white mana. And yes. uh, so you do need to find a use for that white mana. And uh, often the best use for it is just recasting the Defiant Strike at some point that turn. It um, can pay for half of the Vadrock because that is a hybrid cost hi hiding in there. The blue, it can be blue or white plus two red and a one. So right. that is one good use for a treasure that you crack for white. Exactly. So yeah, so that was just a fun card to play with. Um, and then a, a final thing I wanted to note, every time I cast Expressive Iteration in this deck, I felt like I was losing. Um, really? Yeah, I personally, hmm. I found, it's not, I'm not dissing on the card, we all know how good the card is, but I felt like of all the things I could spend my mana on in this deck, I felt like Expressive Iteration was the worst one interesting yeah that was just my experience of the deck okay i i can see it sometimes especially if like the cards line up you really need a land and you got three mutate creatures you really needed any mutate creature and you got two instants in a land you know uh so i mean that can happen but you're right just putting two mana into kind of a wheel turning effect can be pr pr pretty much a letdown when you were hoping to go off well, it, I think one of my critiques of the card in this deck is that just about every other card in this deck is able to net you mana advantage. And Expressive Interation is one of the only cards in the deck which just gets you card advantage. And there's plenty of card advantage in the deck. So again, maybe I'm doing it wrong, or maybe Expressive Iteration is supposed to be like 
the turn three play if you don't have either of the other good turn three plays in your hand. But other than that, I found myself avoiding it and not spending mana on it in the mid-turns of the game. Okay. Do you fire it off on turn two very often? Not often. I, I found that this deck more than any other fires it on turn two. Just get it in the graveyard. Maybe that was yeah. my mistake, right? Maybe that was my leak, yeah. was kind of treating it the way that I ordinarily would want to play it. And maybe that is the thing. Maybe you're just supposed to really like play it on turn two if you don't have a better turn two play. Yep. This deck doesn't have that many great turn two plays. It has a lot of reactive turn two plays, but not a lot of turn two plays that progress you to the combo. Iteration is one that does. It has a lot of turn three plays that progress you towards a combo, whether it be one of the mutate creatures in the aggressive matchups or the Seize the Spoils in Prismari Command that you really want to hit. Absolutely. Final thing that I wanted to note here is be careful when you're playing against blue decks, especially... I, I've seen this annoying version of Sultai going around, which main decks Test of Talent. And I'll tell you what, man, like getting your turn three Prismari Command or Seize the Spoils Test of Talented is a great way to just severely cripple your deck. But anyway, stuff like that can happen. And ooh, it feels bad. I did not win that game. Sounds pretty rough. It really does. All right. Well, thanks for rolling with us through this particular rundown. Tell us if you found this enjoyable and or valuable. One of the things that I would like to see us do a little more on the show is to do some of these deck deep dives. And it's not that often that this late in a season we'll get like an exciting new deck. So I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to to do this. Uh, But just let us know in the comments how you felt about this episode and what we could do to make an episode like this better. Or if you didn't like it, let us know that too. Yeah, I would love to hit like the players of the format early in a format because it feels really tired to talk about rogues or Sultai Ultimatum right now. But, you know, back in January, that would have been really like really interesting and fun. Like we did talk about Sultai a lot back then and it was really cool. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, just also wanted to say if you like a challenge, if you're if you're trying to get better at magic or understand more things about magic and you're not worried about using some mythics on Vadrock, Apex of Thunder, I do challenge uh, any of you out there on the fence to try the deck and really like push your brain to the gigabrain limit. Turn off the Twitch stream. Put you know, lock the kids in the bedroom. Put the put the dog outside and like dial in and play some games with Jeskai Mutate because it is a very challenging deck and sometimes not all the time. But that can be fun. Totally agree. I'm I'm a better player and an older person <laughs> for having spent time on this deck. <laughs> a few more gray hairs in the beard. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for hanging out with us for another episode of the podcast. If you're listening to this, be aware that you can also watch it on Coverco Blue's YouTube channel. If you're watching this, be aware that you can take us on the road while you're driving or putting your kids to bed or doing some other, whatever it is that you do. Uh, You can also listen to us. We're on Spotify. Just keep looking. We'll be there someday. And we're there um, now. Just look harder. Just look harder. Stop being wimps. (laughs) And uh, you can catch Kovac Go Blue streaming on Twitch. You can also catch myself streaming on Twitch. He's Kovac Go Blue. I'm Marina Craft Podcast. And uh, specifically this coming week on Thursday, 2 p.m. ish. 
Pacific time, 11, no, 5 p.m. ish Eastern time, you can watch the showdown on either of our Twitch channels. I'll also try to post a VOD on the Arena Craft YouTube channel. All right. <laughs> so until then, CGB, I'm going to be uh, doing my homework and doing my training montage and figuring out how to destroy my craft. I'll be on a beach. Later, crafties. <laughs>